thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you with me. And for those of you who may be coming to the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Knoxville in October, I hope you will come by our little table or booth there. I'd love to meet some of our listeners, talk to you. We'll have some information, materials available there. So if you're coming, I would be delighted to meet you. Also, if you would, let me know by email if you're getting anything from what I've been covering the last few weeks about the Supreme Court and the common law and what Clarence Thomas was saying about the Constitution and the relationship of common law to the Constitution. It, it would be great to know if I'm talking way over your head or you're getting something out of it or you're learning. Uh, just send an email if you would, some of you, not, not all of you. That'd be way too many for me to respond to, but an email to info at factn.org. That's info at factn.org. And, and let me know if you're finding these helpful to your understanding of law and the Constitution. I must admit that I love, I guess that's a, a, a right word for it, I love the law and I love the history of the law. Now, I went to law school and I did not leave with the love of the law or the history of the law because partly I was not really taught any history of the law and not taught anything about law that would make you love the nature of the law. Because to be honest, it was impersonal. It was a way to make a living. It was what you needed to know. Like a mathematician has to know how to add and subtract to do his job to make a living as a math teacher. But he may not love math. Now, I met a, a math professor once who said something that just captivated my imagination. He said, only Christians really know why plus, one plus one equals two. Because we believe in unity and diversity, singularity and plurality. The rest of the world lives as if all there is is some great chain of being that's moving along purposelessly, and so they have no explanation for why one plus one isn't still one. And, and part of the reason I didn't love law because I didn't see the personal God, the triune God, behind law and law as an expression of who God is in the context of the created order of things. There was nothing to love. It was just a thing. It was just what I needed to know to do my job. I saw no glory in it. I saw nothing to love. In fact, this week, just to tell you what I'm talking about, I, I was in contact with a lawyer in Louisiana, we were talking about the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision from 2015 about same-sex marriage. And um, this, this lawyer is about my age in the early 60s, didn't go to law school until she was 50. And, and she said, I love the law. I, I just love reading about the law. And she said, but I find among my peers, practicing lawyers, they don't have a love for the law. They don't love to study it and think on it and meditate on it and mull it over in their minds and think, what are the implications of these things? Because, see, most lawyers were, were trained as I 
restraint. Just learn the law, learn how to apply it in the particular area in which you're working, whether it's contracts or tort litigation, slip and falls, car wrecks in the courtroom, Wall Street. There was nothing to love. Well, anyway, I've kind of gotten off the subject, but I, I'd love to hear from you that, that I'm not just having a wonderful monologue or soliloquy here, and you're thinking, I have no clue what you're saying. I don't see why it's important or what is relevant. I'm not connecting any dots. I'm not learning anything. Or, you know, my eyes are being opened. I may not follow everything that you're saying, but I'm, I'm getting things that I know I didn't have, and I'm starting to connect dots, and uh, it would just be helpful to have a little feedback uh, from y'all, if you would. Now today, what I want to do is to talk a little bit about the law from the perspective of what we would call the Western legal tradition. You may have heard that term, the Western legal tradition. Of course, it's part of what we would call Western civilization. And of course, the whole of Western civilization is now under attack in our colleges. Western Civ has to go, you know, that kind of thing. And, and with the abolition of Western civilization goes the Western tradition of law. Well, what is it that we would be getting rid of if we got rid of the Western legal tradition? You know, the, we're warned in, warned in Scripture not to move the ancient boundaries. Think before you remove the boundary or change the boundary, because the boundary was put there for some reason. And so I want to look at that today, and I think you're going to find this really fascinating and not just boring history. And you'll see how it really is the work of God over the course of time in the context of history that he's continuing to do. So... Let me let me just define some of the terms here, and then I'll get to the heart of this today. But uh, the term Western, and I'm taking this from a, a great book. I think it's very readable by layman called Law and Revolution, Volume 2. Uh, the subtitle is The Impact of the Protestant Reformations on the Western Legal Tradition. It's by Harold J. Berman, B-E-R-M-A-N. And... Uh, it's really, really been fascinating and eye-opening to me. But he says, by West, he's talking about the developing culture of the peoples of Europe from around the 12th to the early 16th centuries because they shared a common political and legal subordination as well as a common religious subordination to the papal hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. So there was a bit of a hegemony there. And so he says, now legal, I mean systems of law, including constitutional law, legal philosophy, legal science. So he's talking about all of law within the concept of legal. And now I come to the third word, tradition. Why is tradition so important? Well, in the Dobbs decision by the United States Supreme Court, released at the end of June, overturning Roe versus Wade, the majority opinion used the word tradition in connection with law 23 times. Now, that's not counting the concurring opinions or the dissenting opinions. That's how many times the majority referred to our tradition in connection with law. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about Clarence Thomas's majority opinion that five other justices signed, 
in the case of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. It was released the day before uh, Dobbs. And Thomas used the word tradition in connection with our law and legal history 24 times. So we have to appreciate then what is our legal tradition and what do we mean by our legal tradition and if we don't understand this we won't understand what is going on with the interpretation of our constitution and the direction of our culture because the constitution is the supreme law and law is an educative aspect of of the created order it it is a teacher it is a moral tutor Law can never make us good, but it can tell us what is not good so that we might realize something other than what's prohibited is uh, probably good. So law won't make us good, but, but it can teach us what is not good. And when the law then affirms evil is good and good is evil, we get all confused. And that's what's happened. In my years in the legislature, 12 years, I estimated I had at least 2,300, maybe far more than that, meetings with constituents or lobbyists discussing public policies. And I never once had anybody come in and say, this is a bad public policy, or this is a bad law, or this law will have negative effects. I hope you would vote for it. Never. Now, you'd think just the odds would be one out of 2,300. Somebody would say that, right? Well, no, they don't say that. Why? Because we know what the scripture says. The magistrate is to affirm the good and punish the evil. The only question that takes place in the legislature is who really defines good and evil. That's the question. And will our magistrates define good and evil according to their own predilections, their own views, or will they do it according to the righteous judgments of God according to his revealed word? So tradition is really important in understanding the law and the law's effect on the direction of our culture. Now, in Berman's book, he says this about tradition. I mean, he says, the sense of an ongoing historical continuity between past and future and in law the organic development of legal institutions over generations and centuries, with each generation consciously building on the work of its predecessors. Now let's break that down. He's talking about tradition in the broad sense would be ongoing historical continuity. We can have traditions in our family, right? We have some in our family regarding Christmas and and other things. So We all have traditions, but he says in law, he's referring to the organic development. Now, that's an important understanding that it's flowing from something towards something. It's not just ad hoc declarations of statements, do this or don't do that. It's a development over generations and centuries and each generation is consciously building on the work of its predecessors now i'm going to say something here that's very fearful and potentially frightful but it should not be for the christian and we'll get into that why it's not a little bit later but 
when the foundations of law that we've had, this organic sense of development over time of law and principles of law, and as Clarence Thomas said in his opinion that I talked about last week, analogical thinking that develops the law, how we go from thinking about catapults to bazookas and rocket launchers, how we go from thinking about muskets to AR-15s, all this analogical thinking about how do these different forms of weapons fit within the right to keep and bear arms, okay? We talked about that last week. When that is completely subverted and changed, you may be looking at a long period of time for it to be restored. What I am telling you for sure is the elections this fall and in 2024 and 2026 and 2028, absent some divine miracle intervention of God, are not going to restore the loss of the Western legal tradition that we have experienced and are living in. Now, what I'm trying to do by this podcast, what I'm trying to do by the work of my organization in developing legislation and in filing amicus briefs with the Supreme Court is to begin reasserting those foundations. But not a lot of people do that. They just operate within the law as it is. As I said, that's what I began the show with, right? We just learn what the law is and now how do I do it? We're not interested in understanding what's really behind the law or, or what's been lost in the law that we need to recover. It's just how do I apply the formula that I've been given to try to get a better result the next time. I hope that makes sense. In, in other words, there's mostly a mechanical application of the law without any sense of we need to restore its foundations because they're no longer biblical within the context of the Western legal tradition. Now, Berman goes on to say this, the historian Jaroslav Pelikan, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, has contrasted allegiance to tradition with traditionalism. Traditionalism, he has written, is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. In other words, traditionalism is, well, we've always done it that way, so we're going to keep doing it. We don't know why it is that way. We don't know why it's good or bad. We really don't care. It's just what we do. Okay? But he says tradition, on the other hand, is the living faith of the dead. It's the idea that we are developing something. We are, we are maturing something. We're going somewhere with this. Take this now and go further with it. Go further than we did. Correct our mistakes. Make things better in the law. Make the law more just. Make the law more righteous. You see, that's a living faith that is continuing to be worked out. Most people today like the dissenters in the Dobbs case and in the Second Amendment case of Bruin, see tradition as a dead thing. We're just doing it because that's what they did before. That's because those lawyers have bought the worldview that history is meaningless 
because they've adopted an evolutionary view of the world that is just moving somewhere purposelessly without meaning. There isn't any continuity of truth, organic development. It is, as I said a couple of weeks ago, quoting Mark Twain, just one damn thing after the next. And let's just move on to the next thing. Okay? Now, quoting Berman again, the sociologist Edward Schills called tradition not the dead hand of the past. See, that's what I was talking about before. It's just, that's what we've done, so we do it. But rather, the hand of the gardener, which nourishes and elicits tendencies of judgment which would otherwise not be strong enough to emerge on their own. Now, let me flesh that out a little bit. What he's saying here, that it nourishes and elicits tendencies of judgment. That's what we were talking about last week with analogical thinking. Ah, we've thought this way about who persons are, and we've thought that persons should have the right to defend their person, their life, their health, their body, their reputation. A part of defending that would be able to keep and bear arms in case someone were to come against you to take away your limbs or your health or your body or your life. And, and so now we're going to move from swords and knives and muskets to different kinds of modern weapons that, that could be carried. Your 357 Magnum, your Smith & Wesson. You see what I'm talking about? That's what he's saying here. Now, when he also says, which would not be strong enough to emerge on their own, remember I said last week, Clarence Thomas said the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right, and it was not something novel. So what he's saying here is that as we, as we think about history and as we think analogically from the past to the present, which will slip into the future and more analogical thinking. The idea of keeping and bearing arms, if it was just some abstract thing, may not have emerged on its own, but it emerges and becomes clear such that it could be codified because it's been nurtured throughout this period of centuries and development and refinement. And our job as Christian lawyers, as Christian politicians, or as Christian voters looking for the right kinds of Christian lawyers to represent our cases and to, to make our policy arguments and to represent us in government, is to find people who understand the ongoing need for that organic development rooted in our understanding of God and the world that he's created and the way it works. Berman continues, it is presupposed in the Western legal tradition that legal change does not occur at random, but proceeds by conscious reinterpretation of the past to meet present and future needs. The law evolves, is ongoing, it has a history, it tells a story. Again, let me just kind of break that down a little bit here. When you believe in an evolutionary view of history and of the world, things are random, chaotic, unpredictable, and have no purpose, no telos, no end. They're just going along. So things occur 
as he said, at random. I can't learn anything from randomness, right? But he's saying instead there's a conscious reinterpretation of the past. Now this is not historical revisionism. What he's referring to, as we'll discuss in a moment, is looking back at history and making judgments about what's taken place in history according to the standards of God and the judgments of God we see being revealed in the course of history. And we learn from them to meet, as he said, our present and future needs. So with that little commentary, let me read this sentence once more. The Western legal tradition presupposes that legal change does not occur at a random but proceeds by conscious reinterpretation of the past to meet present and future needs. The law evolves, is ongoing, it has a history, it tells a story. Now let me just add here, when you see churches poo-pooing the Old Testament, what they are poo-pooing is history. What they are poo-pooing is that we can learn anything from the judgment that God has made against nations over the course of time and why he has made them, what that says about God, what that says about the nature of the cosmos, what that says about people, and it's saying we can't learn anything from them. We need that history. A church that says we don't really care about the Old Testament, all we want is a New Testament church, well, you're giving up a whole lot of history from which you can be learning how God acts in time and space because God never changes. If God changes, that means there's something contingent in him. That means that there's something outside of him that's affecting him. Well, that's not a God. That's a human being. So I'm just saying, be careful of those churches that, that draw sharp distinctions and breaks and continuity between the story of the Bible, which goes from beginning to the end. Well, I think I'll bring today's podcast to an end right there. There's some other things that I would like to say that need to be said, but I hope I've given you enough to chew on for this week, and we'll come back next week to why knowing history and judging history is so important. And when we lose our knowledge of history, not only do we fall apart, like with Alzheimer's, but society falls apart. And we'll look at that next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.